Hello, and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, where we share the legacy of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You'll get to know the faithful women who shaped our past and hear from inspiring women and men today of faith. (laughs) I'm Carly Guyman. And I'm Shailen Back. We're your co-hosts. We're excited today to welcome back to the podcast, Matthew McBride. Matt, thanks for being here today. It's good to be here. Matt is the director of publications for the Church History Department, and he is a contributor to the Joseph Smith Papers and to the new narrative church history volume, Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And part of his focus professionally has been on the history of missions, and we are really looking forward to our discussion today about early sister missionaries in particular. And Matt, I remember reading in Saints about women in the 19th century who served with their husbands when they were called on missions. Will you just tell us more about this informal way that women were involved in missionary work in the beginning of the church, and then what eventually led to women being called as individual full-time missionaries? Sure. You know, from about 1830 till the late 1890s, women are participating in the church's missionary efforts in a couple of different ways. And one of them, as you mentioned, is is kind of this more informal work that women are doing to share the gospel, kind of the way we think about member missionary work today, with friends, with relatives. And this is a, this is a quiet ministry that these women carry out over the decades, sometimes in person, sometimes in letters, sometimes mm. they'll publish in a church newspaper or, or magazine. One of my favorite examples of this is Marianne Fulmer Price, who joins the church in the American South. Her parents do not join the church. She's kind of, I think, the only convert from her family at the time. Lee marries a man named John Fulmer. They live in Nauvoo, and they're about ready to embark on the trek west. <laughs> and she's realizing this might mark the last time that she ever gets to see her family, A, and B, maybe even correspond with them, because there's so much that's unknown to her. And so there are these great letters that she sends to her family, I think in Tennessee, where she defends the gospel, defends her uh, choice to, to join the church, and teaches them. And there, there, there have to be tens of thousands of instances like this of women doing this, this really Just this desire informally. to share oh, yeah. what they believe and so, what they've learned. Exactly. Something they feel so strongly about, right? The other way that women participate is that, and this is where it's interesting and something that's very different from what we experience today. Almost all the men who were called on missions in the 19th century were married. It was in the mid-19th mid century. Mm-hmm. And so these wives of the missionaries are the unsung heroes of 19th century Latter-day Saint missions because when their husbands leave, they run the farm, they operate the family business, they take care of the children, the home, they're doing everything. It's phenomenal. And without them, like missionary work just does not go forward. Right. Thank you for pointing that out. I think I've never really comprehended that. I'm like, how does that work? <laughs> how does that work when your husband leaves and yeah, you're you're running the whole show all by yourself. Yeah, it was not easy. And there are many stories of just incredible faith and sacrifice on the part of these missionary wives. There were a few of them that would accompany their husbands into the mission field too. So, and this happened most often in missions that were more remote, like where you had to travel for a really long time to get to the South Pacific, for example. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. And if you've read In Saints, you've encountered the story of Louisa Barnes Pratt. That's my favorite. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's an amazing story. But the mission was so remote. It took so long to get there. They would spend longer time there as a result. And so as a way of maybe trying to 
alleviate some of the strain that that places on a marriage and a family. You know, they, the church leaders would allow or even suggest that a small number of women accompany their husbands to the mission field. And their children, too, and, in yes. some cases. A family affair. Exactly. And this is something that a lot of Protestant women did, too, by point of comparison. Mm-hmm. In the 19th century, a lot of Protestant missionary wives. And the kinds of things that missionary wives did in, in the church during this time were very similar in some respects to what Protestant women did. They uh, They were there as the Protestants would call them, as assistant missionaries. Uh, They were doing indirect mission Mm. rather than kind of the public representative speaking, preaching, trying to win converts. They were there in part to support their husbands, to operate the household and to cook and to clean. They would often uh, teach in mission schools, and Louisa Barnes Pratt does this for a period of time in, in French Polynesian, where she teaches her children and local children So these were kind of the ways that women participated in missions in the 19th century. This is a time period where uh, in Western cultures, there's a very strong feeling of separate spheres where men are uh, public figures and in in, in the public sphere and women are in the domestic or the private sphere Mm -hmm. and and operating uh, there and that they have very distinctive Mm -hmm. roles. And so it wasn't common for women, at least in the early to mid 19th century, to be participating as, as like mm-hmm. a public More preacher, actively. a proselytizer. But it, then that changed, right? Exactly. So it changed in a very big way. And it, it changed outside of the church as well. But the moment that I've studied a little bit is 1898 in the church, which is the moment when Wilford Woodruff calls the first full-time proselytizing women missionaries uh, in the history of the church, gives them ministerial certificates. Uh, this included single women for the first time. This is a big change. So part of what I wanted to study was what were some of the big long-term trends that, that were moving underneath this that kind of set the stage for that moment? And then, yeah, what was really different about it? And what was the experience of women now being newly called to, to serve missions in this space that had been designated for men? For, for so many decades, right? So as far as like the trends, <laughs> there are a couple of things you have to know. And one is we talked about how in the mid 19th century, most missionaries are married men. They're in their 30s and 40s and 50s. But one important trend is in those last couple of decades of the 19th century, the age for missionaries starts to just drop precipitously so that by the mid to late 1890s, the typical missionaries in, in his mid 20s. This is a fairly big difference. Not only are they in their mid-20s, they're also single men. It's a generational shift. Mm -hmm. The the first generation of Latter-day Saints is passing the baton to their children, their grandchildren, and so you have this large cohort of younger people that are ready, they're prepared. It's easier for them to go. They don't have as many responsibilities at home. Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. in fact, urbanization and kind of the shift away from farming life for many people means that you have a... But that it's the, the kind of experience you have as a, a young woman or a young man is is a little bit different than it would have been before. Uh, so there, are, there's a lot happening there. But but the important thing is that that age is coming down. And then the other thing to remember is that we're at the tail end of almost a half century of practicing plural Look marriage, <laughs> and that creates a, as you can imagine, an interesting, challenging, difficult situation for missionaries, because polygamy is viewed by almost everyone else in the Western world is this barbaric practice. And a lot of the criticisms that 
people had of plural marriage really focused on what the implications of that practice were for women. And so you have in popular literature, in the news media, you have these comics. depictions. And in, yes, absolutely. I mean, comics, novels, there are these depictions of what Latter-day Saint plural marriage was quote unquote really like. And they're, they're absolutely scandalous. They're, they're upsetting. They're shocking. They depict women as being enslaved to their husbands. And so this is the image of the church in the world, for better or for worse. And everybody knows or they think they know what this is all about, what, what goes on well, in the ground. Even crossing right? the boundaries of like the Atlantic, right? Even over in, in Europe that's traveled there, that this is what it's like in Utah. Absolutely wreaks havoc with missionary work sometimes. And so this is an important part of the stage setting that you have to do to understand 1898 is to just know the kind of opposition that we're still experiencing. Now, by 1898, we're eight years after the manifesto. So President Woodruff in 1890 announces this manifesto. We, we like to say that it marked the beginning of the end of plural marriage. It took some time mm -hmm. uh, for it to, to finish, but it's still top of mind for everybody. It's still the church's image. But the fact that we did stop and, and kind of start to dial back the practice of plural marriage in 1890 did another thing. It accelerated a trend, whereas before, almost all young women in Utah were married, and they were married by the time they were 20. And it was even more common for them for, for a period of time to be married when they were 18 or 19. But as you start to dial back the practice of plural marriage, you get this larger number of women who are in their early 20s, which is now the age we're calling people to serve missions. And they are single still. They're available. Wow. Yeah. They have some time. And what do they do with their time? Well, they go to school. Like they're taking advantage of these academies that have sprouted up all over Utah. They're becoming very well educated. They're becoming articulate. And they're looking at this previous generation of Latter-day Saint women who, when times got really tough in that struggle over plural marriage and it's the way it's perceived by the public, you know, these their, their mothers, the mothers of these, these, these young women had really stepped up in the 1870s, 1880s. They had spoken publicly. They defended, defended. it. Mm -hmm. They used the power of the ballot in, in, in a sense to, yeah. to protect it and defend it. So they've, they've got that example too. So all of these things kind of are happening and they kind of set the stage for a moment in 1898 that I just have found really, really interesting. Okay, tell us more about this moment. <laughs> so this is where we can put some names into this story instead of talking really generally. There's a, a woman named Elizabeth Claridge McCune who is uh, the wife of a very, very wealthy railroad and logging magnate. Uh, in Salt Lake. She's a faithful member of the church. She's a member of some of the various boards, the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association, very involved in her community, she's a public figure. She and her family go on a vacation, and it's going to be a grand tour of Europe, and they're going to start in England. And part of the reason they go there is because her son is on a mission in England, and they're going to they're go say hello. And then afterward, they, they're going to go to Italy and so forth. But while they're in England, they stay down in the southern part of England and they kind of try to help the missionaries a little bit. Her son's there. She'll go to their street meetings and they will preach and she will stand by and hold their hats while they speak. <laughs> uh, sometimes she'll help them sing hmm. and she'll listen uh, to the kinds of accusations that people are hurling at the missionaries in these street meetings and the kinds of difficulties that they're having trying to explain things. And as you can imagine, like trying to defend or explain plural marriage 
when you are a missionary force composed entirely of young men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah, take our word for it. Women are fine. It's okay. It it's doesn't a, it's hold good. a lot of weight. Right. It's it's not persuasive. And so I think she sat there and watched and listened and thought, I wish I could speak. And at a certain point, they have a conference meeting, and it's uh, it's held in this hall in London, uh, in Islington. And she's sitting there, and she's listening to one of the members of the mission presidency talk. And he's talking about some of the challenges missionaries are having. He talks about how there's this one, in particular, this anti-Mormon pamphleteer, who was a former member of the church, who had been oh, going around holding these meetings. And he had was saying all of these terrible things. And, and it kind of had this ring of authority to it because he could say, yeah, I lived in Utah. I know what's going on there. Let me tell you what's really happening there. And it was, of course, like bonkers, some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, women are not allowed to leave the home. They can't leave Just Utah. Just inaccurate. They can't speak in public. They can't, you know, it's, it's all this, all of these accusations. And this doesn't reflect Elizabeth's own experience, of course. And she's sitting there in the audience listening to this. And the mission presidency member uh, is Joseph McMurrin. He sees her in the audience. He knows her. And he says, pointing to her, tonight we have this prominent woman from Utah. And she's going to speak to us about the conditions in Utah and what life is like for Latter-day Saint women in Utah. So she's taken completely by surprise. She's shocked. She's terrified, but she agrees to do it. And she comes back that evening and she speaks. And the effect of her speech is just electric. And there are people coming up to her afterward and congratulating her and shaking her hand and saying, thank you so much. And it is really good to hear from you. It's good to know from your own perspective. And, and So much more trusted. Right. Yeah, you can you can trust her to speak on this issue in a way that that it's more difficult to uh, to trust the younger men, and so the mission presidency takes notice. They start taking her around to other conference meetings in other parts of Southern England, and she teaches and speaks again, very similar approach. And Joseph McMurrin writes a letter to President Woodruff and says, "If a small number of women could be called to serve as missions, we think that the effect could be really good." And President Woodruff brings this letter into a meeting on March 11th where he confers with his counselors, George Buchanan, Joseph F. Smith, and they talk about this. And at the same time, they'd received another letter from California from the mission president there saying, would it be okay if you called my wife to just As be here with me and mm-hmm. to actually be, you know, to, to, to speak, to, mm-hmm. be, to be a missionary? So they're hearing this from different directions, and they decide in that meeting that they will call women to serve missions for that purpose. And so within a matter of just a few weeks, A, they announce it at conference. B, they call the first two single women missionaries in the history of the church, uh, and they call them to serve where? Well, in England, mm-hmm. right where Elizabeth McCune had been. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the moment, the big shift where I things change. And those are those are <laughs> those are some of the reasons for it, and kind of why we mm-hmm. why we ended up where we are. Well, I love that they were wanted, and and that there was so much value that was seen in their voice that, uh, from these women's voices. And so, what was the process of these sisters first being called mm-hmm. on a mission? Like, I, I just want to know. Were sisters showing interest in that? Did they, I mean, apply to be missionaries? How did how did that how were happen? They chosen, yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So the way that missionaries were called at that time involved a fairly elaborate process. There's not a missionary department here, and there's not a, a formal application process in the same way that we have today. You have 
on the one hand, mission presidents who are speaking for the demand side of the equation. We need missionaries. Mm -hmm. So they'll write to the first presidency and they'll say... asking for a quantity of... Exactly. We've got this many people coming home and here's some areas we'd like to open. We think you should send us 11 people or whatever. So that, that's happening. And then on the other side, you have bishops, you have stake presidents who are recommending people as missionaries. And a lot of times, members of the 12 or members of the First Council of the 70, when they would travel and go to state conferences or, or ward meetings, they'd talk about this and encourage people to serve missions and ask the bishops to make some recommendations. Identify and... Yep, yep, because mm-hmm. they're trying to match the demand with some supply, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of this recommendation or nomination process. And when word gets out that, oh, yeah, we can recommend women. Women are needed and unwanted. Exactly. Yeah. You, you say, okay, well, who's going who's gonna to be the first one? Who's going to be the one to, <laughs> to recommend a woman from their ward or their state? And it's this bishop in, in Provo who starts to make recommendations. Uh, and he hears that a couple of young women in his ward are actually getting ready to go on a trip to England. And he says, hey, well, what if you we'll just called them as missionaries? <laughs> exactly. What, I mean, what a great what, vacation. <laughs> It, it turned out really well for both of them. It was the trip had been designed. It was there were these two young women. One was Amanda Inez Knight, and one of them was Lucy Jane Brimhall. They went by Inez and Jenny, and they were going to go together. And part of what they hoped to do was to to say hello to Inez's brother, who was serving a mission there, who also happened to be Jenny's boyfriend. <laughs> so we wouldn't recommend this today. But at the same time, <laughs> but it happened, right? So they plan this trip and their bishop says, hey, what if we recommended you to be missionaries, uh, gave you certificates, and you could preach while you're there? And they said, sure. And he recommended them the first presidency. The first presidency issued calls, and they became the first two women who were called. And so they go there, and uh, Jenny only stays for about six months. And she returns home about the time that her soon-to-be fiancé uh, returned from his mission, and they married, and I guess, what, lived happily ever after? I don't know. But Inez stayed there for almost two years. And so a lot of times when we talk about the founding mother, oh, that's not the right word, but like kind of the mm-hmm. pioneer sister missionary, we'll talk about Inez Knight. Mm-hmm. Because what was important about her experience is that she was, yes, one of the first two, but then she stuck around long enough to have a couple of other companions. So she had a chance to kind of shape these first couple of generations, mm-hmm. you know, because this is an age when you don't have an MTC and a lot of formal training. It's a big question. I mean, the fact that we're starting to call young people at this time, it's like, okay, I'm not calling like a 42 year old kind of seasoned yeah, church leader or yeah. Who can get, who's been speaking in their seventies quorum for 20 years to go out. We're calling like this 22 year old, you know, how do we, how do we train these people? Mm-hmm. And frankly, like that first group of sisters, they were really well educated because they had been attending the academies, a lot of them, especially the ones that were sent to England, to Europe, to the Eastern United States, where most of our missionaries actually were sent at that time. You know, they had school teaching experience. Mm-hmm. They, had, they were educated, they were trained. And, and it's no surprise then that you get mission presidencies saying, Why, you know, elders, if you could, if you could just teach as well as these young <laughs> women that have been called, we'd be in much better shape. That didn't always go over well. <laughs> uh, but there's a reason. There's a reason that, that this was happening. They were asking for these women. They were. They were good. They yeah. were really, really. Um, so amazing. I want to mention to our listeners too. Matt 
as Shaylin mentioned earlier, has spent a significant amount of time researching missions and missionaries. He's written an Enzyme article or several articles on the topic, spoke at the Church History Symposium on this topic, wrote an article for the Journal of Mormon History on this topic, so knows so well these women and these individuals that were in the beginning called lady missionaries, I think is what we've seen them called. And you've described kind of this adjustment of these women going into what had been really kind of a man's world, right? The, a place where men were serving and, and that was the organization and the structure. So maybe give some examples. Tell us what that was like for these women to enter this world and to kind of be carving out a space for the women that would follow them. It's a good way to put it because they're there not only to preach the gospel and, and convert people to the church, they have this task now of converting all of the male missionaries in these missions that they're coming to, to the idea that it's, it's good. It's going to be a shared space now. So yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting. It's not, there there are lots of funny little details that come out in in the diaries and the letters of these women. There, it's it's really fat. They were keenly aware that, that they were like the only women in what had been a completely male endeavor sphere. and mm-hmm. sphere for decades. And so they come into a meeting, and one of the most popular songs that you sing in a missionary meeting in, in some of these places is, We're the True Born Sons of Zion. <laughs> it's this great song. It's a rousing, rousing song. It's intended to get yeah, all the young men all... Get the troops all. together. Exactly. And so you see sometimes it, Josephine Booth, who's one of these first single women, uh, in her journal referring to herself and to the other sisters as the true-born sons of Zion, according to the Relief Society, <laughs> or, or something like that, because she's just saying, every time I come to a meeting, this is the song I sing. Had and to find so- some humor in the situation. <laughs> sure. And, and when someone stands up to start the meeting, they say, elders or brethren, and then they move on. <laughs> and they're like, hello, we're yeah. here too. Yeah, I'm here. And so, so Josephine and others sometimes would refer to themselves as the female brethren, because, <laughs> because that's so what they funny. were called in all the meetings was the brethren. And so some of it was just kind of this humorous adjustment to you've got male terms, male labels for things. You've got just practices that they kind of bumped up against a lot. Sometimes it was a little more challenging. Uh, Clara Holbrook, uh, one of these women, writes in a letter to her parents about how they had just bought a new conference house in one area. This is a, a combined space where missionaries could live, but they could also hold meetings. And they hadn't yet found a housekeeper. And the elders found it so convenient that the sisters were there because they could just have oh, the no. sisters do all the housekeeping, the cooking, and the cleaning. And this became really frustrating to these younger women because they had been called and felt like the burden of their calling. They, they knew that, that they needed to be there to preach we're the gospel. We're here to minister and to preach, yeah. And so, exactly. And so they talk a little bit to the mission president. And there's this moment in a letter where she said, Sister Sergeant and I are still to work in London, but housekeeping, I think, will soon be a thing of the past. For Brother Lyman, who's now the mission president, says this cannot go on. We were not called here for this purpose. So they hired a housekeeper and, and, and things got a little bit more back to normal. But the sisters were always kind of bumping up against these kinds of things. So you've described to us, Matt, that after this initial calling of just a handful of sister missionaries, that over a short time, there's almost this explosion of, of sisters that are now participating in missionary work. Can you describe that change and what that looked like, you know, over 
you know, a couple decades or so. And then we can talk more about where sister missionaries are today, which is really exciting. Yeah, I mean, you start out with these very small numbers. And it's interesting because this moment in 1898 also marks a change for women who are accompanying their husbands on missions. They receive certificates. They have a different understanding as a of parent, their role, kind of, of. Uh, yeah, of mm-hmm. what they're there to do. And so, so this is a, a sea change, and it's not not just for the single women who are defending the church against these accusations in England. It's kind of everywhere, and it starts to grow in terms of numbers. So that uh, after about a decade or 12, 15 years, we've got hundreds of women who are serving missions, which is a lot at the time. Probably represents, but you know, over time, anywhere between 10 and 20 percent of the missionary force, and, and it fluctuates some. And during times like World War II, when fewer men were available, women made up 48 percent mm-hmm. of the force for about a year until mm-hmm. until that changed again. And at first, it was kind of it was kind of like viewed as an experiment. They called it the lady missionary experiment. <laughs> and there were all these articles like in the Young Women's Journal and in the Improvement Era, what do you think about the lady missionary experiment? Is this a good idea? What do you think? You know, and, and so you get mission presidents weighing in, you get young men weighing in, young women weighing in. Everybody had their opinions about hmm. whether what this experiment was and whether it was going to last and, you know, what, what were we about? If it was With, a permanent thing or... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, of course, it turned out to be... And, Women have been a critical part of the missionary force for a century now, mm-hmm. uh, more, I guess, a uh, hundred and hundred and twenty-two years. years. Yeah, and at the end of two thousand nineteen, there were more than nineteen thousand young sister missionaries serving out of more than sixty-five thousand missionaries total. That's elders and sisters and and couples. So about approaching thirty percent of the whole missionary force today is sister missionaries. So for me and Shaylin and I both served missions and to think about this legacy of women who who kind of paved that path and set examples to the women who went before us, who set examples to us, it's just really inspiring. And I would love for you to share what we can learn from early sister missionaries and how women today, especially young women or maybe prospective missionaries, can feel inspired and strengthened by these early women in our history. I'd love to. Would it be okay if I did that while sharing maybe even a few words of wisdom from a a few er, early sister missionaries? I I have a daughter who served a mission a few years ago in in California. And and so I, I got to kind of be there up close and firsthand as I watched her think about and prepare for a mission. And, you know, I served a mission myself. And anybody who's done that knows, like, you feel a lot of feelings. <laughs> when you're in yes. that moment where you're preparing, <laughs> you, you can feel inadequate because it's something so entirely new and, f- frankly, can be a little bit scary to think about. <laughs> and so one of the things that I love to do as I read the journals and letters of these women who were called on missions in, in those early days is look to see what kind of a reaction they have and how they think about the call and then kind of just resolving to go do the work. So this is from Josephine Clough. She was actually a widow. Her husband died while she was still fairly young. She left on a mission in 1904, and she was going to go to be a missionary at the St. Louis World's Fair, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. And this is like this big, huge event, and the church is going to be represented there. And she's this, this woman who's spent her entire life in southern Arizona. She's raised a couple of kids, and 
And here she goes, but she says, this call means so much to me. And she says, gratitude, weakness, and grief fought hard for the mastery of my feelings. Gratitude that I was deemed a worthy ambassador for the gospel of Christ. Weakness that I felt so incapable of performing such a mission with any satisfaction to myself or my heavenly father. Grief that I should be obliged to leave my loved ones for so indefinite a period. And she said, while these conflicting emotions raged in my heart, the thought often presented itself to me that we should leave all for the gospel's sake, father, mother, sisters, brothers, all. And one Sabbath in meeting the speaker quoted, he that will not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I had viewed this mission in the light of a little cross. And as each day rolled around, I strove to bring myself into complete submission. I had no thought of refusing to go, but the sacrifice seemed to be a mountain over which I had no power. I love to read that because it just opens a window on the heart and mind of this other person who's gone through this similar experience that you've gone through as you're thinking about your mission. And we um, felt those things. You felt you know, she all articulates of it. it so clearly, and yeah. I just felt that. I do want to say these women were, as I, I, I've said, most of them were very well educated. They're phenomenal writers, mm-hmm. very articulate, and their journals do such a good job. They're so reflective, mm-hmm. and and they don't just say. Like if I, I wrote in my journal, I'd say what I ate or where I went or something like that. Like they're, they're really, really kind of laying their heart out there on the page in a way that's, that's really striking. Mm-hmm. And kind of comforting to, I think it would be comforting as you're preparing to hear a mission to hear those words and think, yeah, that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. And that she found the resolve to, yeah. to move forward is really inspiring. Here's a couple of things I, I think from Josephine Booth, if I can share, who's, who's this woman who serves in England in uh, 1899. And she <laughs> talks about how when she's on a mission tour and she's riding with some of the more senior elders in the mission. And she says that these two men were somewhat opposed to lady missionaries. And that didn't make things any more agreeable. So she's having kind of this uncomfortable train ride with these two men who are very vocal about the fact that they don't think that the lady missionary experiment is a, is a good idea. <laughs> but then she talks about how a couple days later, she attends three meetings. The house is crowded each time with people. And she's the speaker. And the mission president had brought her along to speak in these three different cities. And it went well. She said, Never was a queen treated better, and the more they did, the more unworthy I felt till I prayed in my heart, Oh, Father, give me a grateful heart for all these blessings you are showering upon me. And I wondered what lesson he wanted me to learn from it all. And then she said, Another thing that filled my soul with joy was that these two men that had said they didn't think sister missionaries were a great idea came up to her and said, Sister Booth, the Lord is pleased with your work. If you were my daughter, I would push you forward that the world might see you. And so she had this this moment kind of at the end where in spite of these insecurities and worries about how she's going to be received as she preaches the gospel, uh, that she has this kind of this nice moment where the whole audience that listened to her comes up and talks to her about what a wonderful job she did and that these missionaries came up afterward and said, you know, I would push you forward so the whole world can see you. Some more acceptance there. Yeah, and that's encouraging. And I think it's kind of a nice way to think about kind of how we've thought about women and their participation in in missionary work ever since. Mm -hmm. There was an article in the New York Times a few years ago about how effective young women are as missionaries 
And I thought, yeah, the article just kind of echoes this. It almost makes that same recommendation. We should push these young women forward so that all the world might mm -hmm. see them. And I thought about that a few times as my daughter served a mission and I would read her letters and think, she was really, really good. She's a better missionary <laughs> than I was. Just phenomenal to see the way she would work with people and connect with people in a, mm -hmm. in a really powerful way. So. And I think that we look back on the 20th century as this huge period of growth for the church. And we think of the contribution of missionaries and we can put sister missionaries right into that as, as major contributors and the impact and influence they had was enormous on that. This is just amazing to me hearing these experiences from the first sister missionaries. And I mean, missions are hard in general, but then to have that added pressure and stress of trying to break through this male missionary force, you know, they did such an incredible job. Um, they were very strong, very faithful, and it's incredibly inspiring. As we were preparing for this interview with you, Matt, you had shared with us some resources that we'll share in our show notes and our description just with our listeners, because we loved learning about some of these sisters in their descriptions of certain the things that they went through and certain feelings that they had. It's just like that is, it's the same. It's 120 years later. And I felt those same things. And one of the resources is in family search, they have a way that will kind of highlight the missionaries in your family. And I found this sister, um, her name's Sadie Nelson, and she served in 1919. And she's my grandpa's aunt. And I'm just thinking that's not that far away. And she no. has living grandchildren that I have yet to connect with, but it was just incredible to me. And I feel this connection so strongly with someone I've never met, but I just totally went down a rabbit hole in family <laughs> in family search, just trying to learn more about her. She was a, a widow when she went and she didn't have any children. She she served in the Eastern States for a couple of years and then um, came home and went on to marry someone else. But it was just such an incredible connection to an incredible and major part of our church history, especially related to missionaries. And we want to know, how would you, Matt, how would you summarize the importance and contributions of sister missionaries throughout the history of the church? Beginning right in the 1890s there, uh, you have this mantra that women can open doors that men can't and that there are unique contributions that women can make to the, the process of, of preaching the gospel and helping people become converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ that men aren't as well positioned to do. And we talked about why that might have been the case because of plural marriage, right? And the conditions in the missions at the time. Clara Holbrook says, you have no idea how the question of polygamy confronts us on all sides. People who accept or would listen to other principles turn a deaf ear to us on account of this one principle. So what women were able to do on that one account was really important and an example of kind of a unique contribution. And I wouldn't pretend to know all of the unique ways that women contribute, but I served a mission and I saw sister missionaries teach and I watched my daughter and I saw her emails I think if, if you were to dig in and do the same kind of research that I've done about the 1890s and look at the 1930s or 50s or 80s or today, I have no doubt that you could find similar ways that women are contributing as missionaries in, that, are, that are unique, that are important. I, well, I, I love the idea of it being a unique contribution, mm -hmm. right? That it's important and it is so needed to make up kind of the puzzle piece of outreach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
right? Yeah. That to reach certain people or to communicate certain messages, that women really are able to provide this unique perspective, unique voice that really is so needed. Thank you so much, Matt, for spending time with us today to talk about so many remarkable early sister missionaries um, and for the great work that you've done to make their legacy known and to celebrate their contributions. So thank you again. You bet. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your work. And again, as we've mentioned earlier in the episode, we will share in the description links to these various articles and stories Depending on the platform that you're listening on, the the church's website, if you go to churchofjesuschrist.org and search for the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, there under each episode, there's lists of links and resources to learn more about each of the topics that we are discussing. So definitely check that out. And again, to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. And we hope that you're enjoying these stories and experiences and perspectives of women. And we would love to hear from you. So take a minute to leave us a review, give a rating on whatever platform you're listening on, and feel free to reach out to us, to Shaylin and I, with any feedback or ideas, you can contact us at podcasts at churchofjesuschrist.org. Until next time, I'm Shaylin Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.